On November 2, 2018, skeletal remains are found on the outskirts of Clarksville, Ohio. Police are unable to explain how the person got there and what happened to them. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Gerald Haas. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. And if you've been tuning in for a couple of weeks, you know that we're not in a basement anymore, but it just, it, it rolls better. <laughs> Welcome to a not dank, not, not dark, moist. not moist, <laughs> not moist studio somewhere on the streets <laughs> of Georgia. <laughs> So, uh, little weather happenings. Had a little hurricane supposedly come through, and it didn't get us no rain this time. It's so fucking hot, man. Yeah, it, that summer's here. This is like the like don't touch me heat. Like get the hell away from me. This is a two t-shirt day. Yeah, I always wear two shirts. I I can't, I can't not wear an undershirt. Well, this is an interesting case. I'm assuming, even though it was my idea. I have done no research because I was in a car accident yesterday and my butt is really, really sore. It's funny how that happens. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have been violated by a large animal. Specifically a rhinoceros <laughs> is what he said at lunch. <laughs> but I'm I digress. Sore. It is ridiculous. The good news well, no, I guess it's not good news. The bad news is we cannot get any beer from where this case is from. Ohio doesn't love us. Ohio doesn't send beer below Kentucky, I don't believe. I don't think so at all. And they've got like some good, super brewery. good breweries. Um, Great Lakes is one of the best breweries in the country. I was able to try it once in Tennessee because it was at a beer festival. But that's it. So we are partaking in the Naked River Brewing Company out of Chattanooga's Tennessee, and it is the Naked Light Pilsner. We're drinking light beer because it's daytime. <laughs> and we're watching our girlish figures. So I think we have a five-star review since the last time we recorded. We do not have any small business shout-outs. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a small business and you would like a free shout-out, give us... A message on the socials or email us at mysteriousbrews at gmail.com and we will get you some shout outs. We climbed back in the charts in Ireland. I love Ireland. I'm going to go. Let's just go. Let's, I mean, how, how high? How high did we climb? 62. Oh, yeah. That definitely warrants a, um, a pub broadcast. Yeah. We got to make the trip. I mean, we got to. If we make it. To anything in Scotland, I will take the verbal abuse about our accents just to be there. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> we had a five-star review. It says, Andy Size 71 says, different but good. I, I, I mean, I'll take it. She's been a long-time member of our Instagram. Oh, Nice. She says, Arlo and the coach take mysteries to the next level. Sometimes their distracted ramblings are even more entertaining than the actual storyline. 10 out of 10 recommended. That's pretty awesome. It is. I mean, 
We do ramble. <laughs> Sometimes it's coherent. Is it though? Well, most of the time it is. <laughs> May not have any bearing on the case, but it's coherent ramblings. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it, ladies and gentlemen. The story that we found is a Wired magazine article, and it's titled The Virtuoso Coder. This is the story of a young man named Gerald Christopher Haas, mm-hmm. or Haas, because I coached a kid that we said Haas, he said Haas, but his was spelt H-Ass, so we always said Haas. I think it's Haas. Yeah, we're going to go with Haas, because I, I don't, we picked on that kid, so hopefully he's listening. You as a coach picked on children? Oh, we nicknamed them, too. We can't tell those nicknames on there. No. All right, so on November 2nd, 2018, Mr. Eric Myers was deer hunting on his friend's Bill O'Brien's property just north of the city of Clarksville, Ohio. So he had just shot a deer and climbed out of the stand to go see what he had accomplished. But... Poor deer. The deer said, not today, buddy. And he had to track the animal. And unfortunately, he gave up at dark but decided to resume the tracking the next day. So he gets his father, William Myers, and Mr. Bill O'Brien to help him, and they start the tracking process again. And at the edge of a soybean field, the three men start looking in a wooded area when Eric notices what he thinks is a very odd-looking rock. When he examines it closer, he realizes, that ain't no rock. And he realizes it's a human skull missing the lower jaw. Immediately, he calls 911, and the Warren County Sheriff's Office sends out 12, a dozen investigators to scour the area. And they soon discover a headless skeleton with its right leg bent at 90 degrees the left leg still had muscle fibers attached. Ooh. Yeah. Just a short distance away, they find a rib, some jumbled arm bones, and obvious signs of scavenging. What they never found were the missing 10 teeth of the lower jaw, mm-hmm. the hands, all of the neck bones, and the feet. Now, the femoral leg bone was completely broken, and it was broken at the neck where it attaches to the hip, and the hip was dislocated. Now, keep in mind, the femoral bone is the strongest bone in the body. Yeah, to break a femur, it's going to take a lot of pressure, man. Like, I think it's what, like 900 pounds of pressure, something like that? That's crazy, man. Yeah. It's like basically the equivalent of being hit by a car or falling, I think, 10 stories. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's yeah. not an easy task to break that bone. No. They start investigating further into the wooded area, and they find two black sneakers, a dark shirt, a pair of black pants that had a vine through the belt loops fashioned as a belt. Inside the pants, they look up and find a wallet. Inside the wallet was a substantial amount of waterlogged cash, and they never put a figure on that substantial amount. But for them to say a substantial amount, I'm thinking at least a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, at the very least. They find a Subway rewards card 
a reward card for a quote chain of erotic boutiques. Nice. You got to get that discount. Yeah. And <laughs> the Ohio State ID for a Mr. Gerald Christopher Haas. Date of birth 9/30/1975. Gerald had been missing for approximately 7 weeks and Columbus police had not put a great deal of effort into locating Gerald since he was an adult and was free to do as he pleased. Right or wrong, you know, it is what it is at this point. Yeah. So the Warren County Sheriff's investigators were facing an uphill battle before they even knew anything about Gerald. He had last been seen one county over, and that would be at a gas station. He was in possession of a black backpack when he disappeared that contained three smartphones two Dell laptops, an Amazon tablet, and a plethora (laughs) of USB cables and USB sticks. Friends and colleagues stated that Gerald never left the bag anywhere. While he was at work, he would even take the bag into the bathroom. Authorities still did not know where this bag was. Now, Gerald was the co-founder of Tessar, T-E-S-S-R, And this is a blockchain company that was described as a company who would utilize the blockchain technology to streamline data sharing at higher education institutes. The company had created a blockchain-based token known as TSRX that it had started selling to insiders in the late spring and early summer of 2018. The sales goal had been to raise $30 million from investors. Gerald who had received a 1.5 million token or cryptocurrency. Oh, that's fancy stuff. As his compensation package believed that he could make a fortune if Tesser worked out. And I have to agree with him. He had been pushing himself to finish the code needed to launch the startup's platform in the fall. Much of the critical software he had written was stored on the hard drives of the computers he was in possession of in the backpack. Dude, I don't understand this cryptocurrency stuff. I, d- I did read a story about a guy that accidentally threw away a hard drive with like today's equivalent to like $75 million worth of cryptocurrency. I read one where the guy forgot his password. <laughs> I saw yeah. that too. So according to Gerald's colleagues, he had neglected to make any copies of his work. Now, supposedly this was not... Out of the ordinary for Gerald, he was described as a man whose genius was frequently overshadowed by his proclivity for self-sabotage. He was scary smart, a free thinker, and socially awkward. Gerald would often describe his failures as opportunity to live life as an outsider, but he had come to regret his stubbornness as he was now approaching middle age. He had thrown himself into Tesser as a last-ditch effort to achieve the wealth and respect he had been chasing his entire life. Now, Gerald was the son of a firefighter father and an insurance agent mother who divorced when he was young. Gerald was bright enough to skate through high school in Springboro, Ohio, which is a well-to-do suburb of Dayton. He could ace any test despite not having studied the entire night before. But, as we all know, these types of people, this lackadaisical attitude at studying finally caught up to him when he entered college. 
and he had started at Ohio, the Ohio State University to study computer science. He would wind up dropping out after his sophomore year. He traveled to Florida with $200 to his name and lived on the streets for months, reveling in the chance to observe society what? from an outcast's point of view. What? Yeah, I didn't understand that either. God, who, I mean... I wish I had the intestinal fortitude to do such, just pick just up and move. To live on the street? You want to live on the street? Not really. I mean, there's a street right out there. I'm you not can... getting on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you can, I mean, you can live your dream, man. He did. Speaking of living your dream, if any listeners would love to give me an RV, I'm in the market. Because I hit that ditch really hard with that piece of crap <laughs> car of mine. <laughs> he needs one of them uh, Uncle Rico RVs. Oh, that'd be amazing. He did not spend a single cent of the $200 he had brought with him. Instead, he saved it for a bus fare, as he would later tell his friends. This bus fare would get him back to Ohio. So he's frugal. I'd say cheap, but you say fruit. In the end, he did not take said bus. He just hitchhiked home. It's cheaper that way. It is. He would later credit his dabbles in homelessness with shaping some of his core values. And quote, he stated, given my dabbles, given my prior past, my idea of living maximally is likely closer to the average Joe's minimalism. I don't like money or much of what it represents in modern society. Yeah, I don't like money either. I like the stuff that buys me. I wish I had some more of it so it could buy me some more freedom. So just say we hit that lotto, man. You're dropping them hints. <laughs> Lobster tails and ramen. So next, Gerald would attend Hocking College, which is a two-year technical school in Nelsonville, Ohio, where he studied to become a broadcast engineer. He would work at the campus TV station, but his main passion was creating psychedelic audiovisual shows as part of a performance art combo called the 555 Timers. He named this group after an integrated circuit used in joysticks. I'll have to take his word on that one. It was during his days at Hawking College that Gerald, who went by the nickname Derry, at the, or I'm sorry, on the Ohio racing, became addicted to drugs. Quote, Derry would find something to put up his nose, and regardless of what it was, he'd get involved, end quote, says Mark Yanitel, a fellow member of the 555 Timers. The Yanitel, what was his name? Yanitel? Yanitel. 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 According to Mark, Gerald had a fondness for esoteric hallucinogens, part Particularly one called DMT. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that's, uh... If you're going to go, go big. Yeah, I mean, go big or go home. <laughs> you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> woo buddy. For those of you that don't know what DMT is, it has been labeled the businessman's high because the it business only, mm-hmm. only lasts... A short time, but makes the user feel as if they have been high for years. Oh, wow. On occasion, Gerald liked to get high on DMT, then wade through a crowded rave in a three-piece suit and an Israeli gas mask. He loved how his appearance confused the glow stick-waving teens. To say he's 
Eccentric is an understatement. Slightly. Slight, so, slight understatement. After earning his associate's degree in 1998, Gerald would settle in the town of Athens. There he would juggle a full-time job as an ISP technician with freelance coding jobs on the side. The late 90s and early 2000s were a great time to be a programmer, and anyone proficient in lightwave 3D or macromedia could make excess of six figures. But Gerald had a knack for screwing up every good opportunity that came his way. No matter how straightforward an assignment was, he would take the most convoluted approach possible to demonstrate how smart he really was. If a client had asked for a project to be coded in a relatively simple language like lingo, for example, he would do it in C++ instead and inevitably miss the deadline. Quote, you ask him to walk a straight line, he'd find a way to insert algebra into it, end quote, <laughs> says Mr. Yantle. That's my whole life, too, man. I always use algebra every single solitary day because they taught it to me, so I got to use it. They didn't teach me how to do my taxes or, or how to fill out a job application <laughs> or how to socially network. Gerald's productivity was also hampered by his drug use. He was now, at the time, taking oxymorphone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, and dilated. And he suffered multiple overdoses, according to Yantle and Mr. Yantle's brother, Scott. When his friends expressed concern about his drug use, he would swear that his geeky attention to detail prevented him from becoming addicted. Quote, I do that dumb thing where I actually research the drugs I use. I know. How silly of me, he once stated. There were occasions when Gerald would temporarily come off a bender and dazzle people with his brilliance. Mark Anatole recalls that Gerald figured out a way to improve an open-source video encoder so that it could crunch multi-megabyte files in a matter of minutes rather than hours. Mark urged his friend to capitalize on this achievement, but Gerald hemmed and hauled before dropping the project altogether. According to Mr. Yanatil, quote, he was like Cypher from the Matrix, you know? You see code, but I see brunettes and redheads. But when he reached that genius moment, when he was on the cusp of some big idea that could maybe change the world, he would get nervous. In 2006, Gerald's childhood friend, a Jarrett Couture contacted him about a job. Couture headed up a web development firm outside of Dayton and hired Gerald to work as a full-stack developer. No idea what that is. Yeah, me either. <laughs> but it, it sounds very it important. It sounds super important, though. He did the job remotely from his home in Athens for four years until Couture drove from Dayton one day to check on him. And Mr. Couture was flabbergasted, shocked, amazed, whatever you want to put in there, to discover that Gerald was living with his girlfriend and her father in a house that had literally been hit by a tornado. There was a large hole in the roof. Hmm. The floors were buried beneath mounds of newspapers, old cereal boxes, and plates encrusted with rotten food Ugh. that emitted quite the stench. The odor. Gerald seemed oblivious to the filth, his attention devoted to chatting with people online. He stated, quote, Maslow didn't know 
about the internet when he created his hierarchy of needs. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I think it's just below food, end quote. Under the alias Tone Hog, he spent <laughs> countless hours. Oh, what? Tone Hog. Tone Hog? Oh, it gets better. He's got another one that's. <sighs> okay. I don't get people, but all right. Yeah. He spent hour or countless hours moderating a cyberpunk web forum where he offered his opinions about his pet topics, which were libertarian politics, social anxiety, high-fat diets, and the creme de la creme, the shibari bondage. And if you don't know what shibari bondage is, I don't. and by the look on your face, you look perplexed, <laughs> it is also known as the Japanese rope bondage. Kinky. I mean, I'm down with a lot of weird stuff, so I can't can't fault the man. I'm not gonna kink shame <laughs> at all. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, whatever I'm, gets you rocks off. Yeah, man. Outside of I'm children, in, I'm into some weird shit. But yeah, definitely not children. So everything I do is on at least legal in some states in a majority <laughs> of the continental U.S. <laughs> Maybe not the deep south. Mm, it's frowned upon. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Now, fearing that Gerald's well-being was in jeopardy, Mr. Couture eventually convinced him to move in with him and his family in the suburbs of Dayton to start working full-time at his company, Edge Webwear. Gerald left his girlfriend behind in Athens and instantly stopped using drugs. At the office, he embraced the role of the... Instantly? That's, that's what pretty, it says. That's pretty impressive. I'm proud of him. At the office, he would embrace the role of the lone weirdo amid amongst Midwestern squares. <laughs> he was the resident expert on matters such as government surveillance and this new fangled thing called Bitcoin. Quote, the way his ego worked, he was turned on by the things he knew that you didn't know, says Ron Campbell, the president of U Creative, a marketing firm that had brought Edge Webware in-house. He felt like he knew a whole world that you didn't, that you're living in this polished 2.2 children white picket fence world, but he knows a dark world you know nothing of, a humanity you know nothing of, end quote. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> but Gerald could not sustain this state of normalcy, and he moved out of Couture's home in 2013, reunited with the girlfriend, and once again drifted into the darkness. He would dress in tattered black clothes and would show up hours late for work or not off at his desk. His dental hygiene was so poor that several of his teeth rotted out. This guy is a weird, he's, he's an odd duck. Yes, he is. One Halloween, Mr. Couture recounts, Gerald ripped off his shirt and ran around the office with his arms outstretched, muttering, quote, I'm getting the idea, man. I'm getting the idea. <laughs> All right. He does seem like somebody I would hang out with, though. Oh, right. he would be fun to hang out with. Yeah, I'm Because you could fuck with him. <laughs> I mean, I'm a weird guy, too, so, I mean, I'm not going to. can't fault the man. Now, Gerald was also a fanciful liar. He once submitted his resignation to Edge Webware, explaining that he had saved up $40,000 and was going to move abroad with his girlfriend and her father. He said they needed to escape the U.S. government, which had targeted his girlfriend's dad because of his radical politics. 
After bidding his final farewells on a Friday, Gerald showed back up to work the next Monday, claiming that all of his money had been stolen just hours before his flight to this unidentified foreign country. Edge Wedware gave Gerald yet another chance because, quote, hyperpolyglots are rare. A what? I don't know what a hyperpolyglot is. A hyperpolyglot. A hyperpolyglot? Why don't you look that up? Why don't you Google that? Hyperpolyglot. Uh, it's make, just like it sounds. Don't make me do stuff. I'm the looks and the... You're the brains. I'm the looks of this operation. Poly, what is it now? Hyper. Hyper. Poly. Hyper. Poly. G-L-O-T. Poly. G-O-O-T. G-L-O-T. Hyperpolyglot. Is someone who is both a gifted... And math, massive language accumulator. They possess a particular neurological trait that's well suited for learning languages. Well, considering I've been learning Portuguese for the past, I don't know, three months, and I know about four words, I would say that I am not a hyperpolyglot. A hyperpapaga. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Mr. Couture recalls, quote, I can't tell you how many times a client would say, Can you program this in X? And I would go, to Gerald and say, I can hire a contractor to do this, but do you want to take a crack at it? And he'd say, sure. And within 24 hours, he had he would know the language well enough to have an intelligent conversation with the client. And within a week, he'd be coding completely in it. I can't tell you how many times that happened, end quote. So the man's brilliant. Yeah, and it, clearly when it when they said that he was scary smart i mean yes that is crazy smart right there now gerald finally left edge webware in november of 2016 and on the morning in question mr couture went to pick up gerald for work gerald emerged from his rental house trembling and holding a 22 caliber pistol he said he had been up all night because people had been banging on his door threatening to murder him and his girlfriend mm. He persuaded Mr. Couture to give him a day off to recover, but he never showed up to work again. After this behavior turned increasingly erratic and he became emaciated from not eating, in the summer of 2017, he moved in with his mother, Miss Judith Wallace Huff. She had become alarmed enough to step in and convince him to move to her property in southern Ohio, northern... Western West Virginia without the girlfriend into a vintage camper on her 30 acre property. That's what I'm talking about. And she made sure he got clean the hard way. The hard way? Yes. He came off opiates with nothing. Damn. Yeah. I would not want to go anywhere near that camper when he's coming clean. No, thank you. So with fall approaching, Gerald would complain that the camper which did not have heat or adequate natural light, felt like a jail cell. And one night after Thanksgiving, he ran off into the Appalachian Mountains and roamed for days. Good Lord. He was eventually arrested for breaking into a backwoods church in an attempt to stave off frostbite and return to his mother's property. He would later claim that he had a spiritual experience while in his forest trek. He said he sensed a phantasmic deer alongside him as he hiked and that the animal taught him to, quote, to walk in the world again, end quote. 
So knowing that her son was unhappy in the camper, his mom in December helped him move to Columbus. And this seemed the most likely place for him to move to to find steady employment in the state of Ohio. She rented him a furnished apartment, stocked it with groceries. So he's set, you would think. Mm -hmm. But in January, Gerald had to move into a homeless shelter. The only bright spot was he was finally sober, and despite his dismal circumstances, he was working towards something better. He sold loose cigarettes to other <laughs> shelter residents and used that's a, a hell of a de- that's a hell of a business. And he used the local library to send his resume to potential businesses. This is where he would find Tesser. So we back up to what kind of Martin Scorsese did there for a second. I love when we do that. We're so artistic. Yes, we are. So we go back to the Warren County Sheriff's Office, and they put two investigators or detectives on the case, a Mr. Lieutenant Chris Peters and a Sergeant Brian Hounshaw. And they were tasked with interviewing anyone that was an acquaintance of Gerald. Uh, One of the first people they tracked down was a man named Emmanuel Sylvia. And Sylvia was one of Gerald's co-founders at Tesser. He had asked the detectives if they could meet him in a Kroger parking lot near his home. So Peters and Hounshaw obliged and said that when they met Mr. Sylvia, the first words he stated was, do y'all offer police protection? So, yeah, he says, the first time meeting the detectives, hey, y'all offer uh, police (laughs) protection? Why? No one knows, not even the detectives. So he did not explain why, and without giving the detectives time to answer, he proceeded to tell how he and Gerald became partners. According to Mr. Sylvia, in October of 2017, while working as a storage engineer for J.P. Morgan Chase in Columbus, Sylvia had experienced what he called a, quote, office space moment. And that is a sudden realization that he could no longer allow the corporate culture to diminish his soul. His solution to this was to quit his job and start a business that he described as having, quote, a purpose to help others. This company would eventually become Tesser. Sylvia's core idea for the business was to create a new kind of blockchain, a digital public ledger spread across a network of trusted computers. He conceived of a blockchain that could communicate seamlessly yet securely with all other blockchains regardless of their origin. We should have looked up what a blockchain is. I tried, but I still don't know. Over time, Sylvia came to believe this innovation could revolutionize higher education, in particular by simplifying basic transactions, such as the transfer of credits between institutions. Sylvia also envisioned a system of transparent, quote, smart contracts under which corporations would agree to buy courses for students they wish to recruit and then monitor their academic process on the blockchain. Though Sylvia had two decades of IT experience, he lacked the advanced coding skills needed to create his blockchain. In early of 2018, he started looking for a programmer to serve as Tesser's lead developer. He was in the middle of the search when he set up a meeting with a web developer 
named Etienne Fieri, who he hoped he would employ to build the Tesser.io website. Fieri had heard that the startup also had an opening for a programmer, so she brought along a friend of a friend who she had been told was desperate for work. He was a tall, slender man with icy blue eyes and strikingly blonde hair, named Gerald Haas. <laughs> Immediately after shaking hands with Sylvia, Gerald flipped open his laptop and asked, quote, What do you need coded? Sylvia was smitten with young Gerald's ability to solve tricky programming challenges and soon made him the co-founder. Quote, the programming language we use to write smart contracts, Solidity, Gerald picked it up in a day or two, Sylvia says. I've been in the industry for 20-some years and met a lot of brilliant people, and Gerald was one of the best. He definitely had this extreme talent, end quote. That's amazing. I mean, on, I mean, honestly, that's yeah, well, crazy. That, for all of his quirks, for you to be able to, and I have heard that, you know, computer programming is kind of like learning a second language, but for you to be able to take within 24 or 48 hours a new mm-hmm. programming language and start creating working programs is unfathomable to us neophytes. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. So Sylvia and Gerald worked on Tesser in a friend's vape shop after hours. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're just changing the world in a vape shop. They would hack away at the code until they crashed from exhaustion on the sto- stores to sofas. Gerald focused much of his intense labor on instilling the startup's blockchain with the ability to use the newly minted TSRX token for tuition payments. He also helped design cryptocurrency wallets that could be opened only with biometric data rather than traditional passwords. Tesser dubbed this innovation the, quote, bio key ring. Gerald would work on freelance projects to make ends meet as he waited the big payday and work late into the night on Tesser's framework. Just after joining Tesser with Fieri, Gerald and Fieri began dating and actually moved in together just two weeks after joining the Tesser team. So by early May, Tesser was the buzz of the Columbus tech scene. And Ohio was the first state to accept Bitcoin for tax payment. And this was a signal of the state's desire to foster crypto ventures. So small investors were pumping in enough cash for Sylvia and Gerald to lease an office at the Idea Foundry. And that was a tech incubator on the west side of downtown. Right after setting up their new office, Gerald and Sylvia would make the rounds at the Columbus Startup Week, where they promoted the pre-sale of the TSRX token. For a few weeks, select buyers would be allowed to use the Ethereum cryptocurrency to purchase Tesser's tokens for the equivalent of $0.10 each. If the token's price rose when the crowd sale commenced that fall, Pre-sale customers stood to make a lot of money. Quote, investors in the tokens get 5,000% or more profits from the move. It's a really weird hack to the whole standard financial system model of investors, stocks, etc. And I'm pretty shuffed about the whole thing, said Jared. So scared of missing out, crypto enthusiasts started scooping up 
wads of this TSRX token. And during May and June, they had or were approaching their $30 million target. Sylvia and Gerald discussed how their lives might change if Tesser took off. The two men professed to have little interest in the trifles of materialism, but they joked that they would cash out their Tesser to become wandering Buddhist monks. I'm going to tell you something. If I make a $30 million payday, I'm not becoming a Buddhist monk. You might. There's things I want to do before then. I mean, one hell of a weekend in Vegas, but then, then. Let's That's do- a good ass nut. <laughs> then let's become a monk. <laughs> Gerald also bragged to his friends that he was looking forward to becoming, quote, filthy rich. Sylvia now says to investigators that Gerald soon had a big change of heart. He says that Tesser canceled its plans to sell tokens to the public in July and that he and Gerald became intent on figuring out how to distribute free tokens instead. That would probably piss a lot of people off if they had invested in this token you're about to just start handing out. So in mid-August, as the Tesser team was scrambling to get its uh, educational blockchain out of the beta phase, Sylvia noticed that Gerald was becoming more frazzled and glum. Gerald would confide in Sylvia that he and Fieri were having troubles. Quote, she's expressed wanting to keep me for herself, but doesn't want to be kept herself, Gerald once wrote in a text message. This imbalance hits my Libra energy to the core. Your what? Libra. Libra. L-I-B-R-A. Whatever the hell that energy is. Libra? Libra, 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 Libra. Libra. Might be the Libra. You are the best. I'm the best in the bills, Nils. That's why we make the big bucks yeah, that we duh. do, because you, sir. Cunning. You are a cunning <laughs> linguist. <laughs> he also said that there were people intent on causing him harm, though he did not name them or offer a reason for said threats. So toward the end of Sylvia's conversation with investigators Peters and Hounshell, he recounted that the last interaction that he had with Gerald took place after a Tesser board meeting in a suburban office park on the night of August 30th. A visibly distraught Gerald confronted Sylvia on one of the complex's quiet sidewalks. He laid down on the concrete and moaned that Fiera's, quote, group was out to get him. He also said there was sensitive material on his phone that he urgently needed to delete. Sylvia had never seen his friend so tormented, and he feared for his safety. Yet, he was not able to offer any words of comfort before Gerald bolted. Gerald? Maybe he bolted because his name's Gerald. Uh, could be. I'm, I mean, ugh. <laughs> it's not a handsome name. It's weird. I mean, I'm sure he, lo- I'm sure he was used to it. It was his name, but I don't know. Something... I don't know. I'm just trying to contribute to the podcast in any way I can. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> that whole co-host thing, you know. I just, fe- I just felt that I was being too quiet. Oh, okay. So, well, at least there's that. I have nothing against his name. So, investigators Peters and Honshul waste no time finding and interviewing Miss Fieri. Guy Fieri? Mm, no. Etienne. Oh. They meet her in a steak and shake parking lot. Boy, these people like to meet in parking lots in Ohio. First the Kroger parking lot, now we're meeting in a steak and shake. 
Well, the Steak and Shake has really good burgers. Well, they have really good milkshakes. Oh, they really do. That's true. And they're pretty cheap, so it seems like the logical place. Okay, if you say so. The story they get from Miss Fury is 180 degrees in the opposite direction from what Sylvia had just told them. According to Miss Fury, who was sobbing and visibly shaken, according to the two investigators, she stated that Gerald and her were very much in love and had been, quote, inseparable to the very end. Miss Fury and Gerald had been introduced by a mutual friend named Charles Chick Ford. He was a 67-year-old auto mechanic who sold nutritional supplements on the side. That sounds like a great job. Yeah. Multi-level marketing. Post it on your Facebook. You want to be an entrepreneur? Give me $60,000. Yeah. Buy my vitamins. It was Mr. Ford who emailed Gerald's resume to Fieri, which led her to bring him to the Tesser interview. The two bonded over their shared passion for composing music as well as their past struggles with the lure of drugs. Gerald told Miss Fieri that he had recently gotten sober after years of abusing opiates, and Fieri confided in him that she was once addicted to painkillers after she suffered a back injury. They made a visually striking couple, according to the friends. There was the gangly Gerald with his Nordic blonde mane. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving your enunciations today, man. You are... I told you, man, I'm cunning. You're killing it. And the petite Fieri you don't with even, her you really, jet black hair. You really don't even need me. You well, could definitely do this. I don't know about that. You could definitely pull this off by yourself. Probably not. And th- then they would talk about me like they're talking about him. He's talking like there's someone else there. <laughs> <laughs> so the two had moved in together in an extended stay hotel in northeast Columbus. But according to Miss Fieri, they were saving up for a house in the affluent suburb of Bexley. And they even open up a joint bank account. There's your first damn mistake. Yeah, joint bank accounts tend to not work out. No, because usually there's one of them joints that's using it more than the other one. Mm-hmm. The 43-year-old Miss Fury, who had come to the realization that... <laughs> She's got to be related. Oh, yeah. I it's mean, spelt the same. She has to be related. because she's got black hair and he's got not, bottled blonde. So. That's not like a... No, it's not a very common, common name. name. Now, she had come to the realization that she would probably never marry, but hmm. believes that marriage was inevitable. Speaking of buts, mine is so sore. I'm going to need you to stop right there because this is about to take a turn for the worst. It'll be off the rails within 30 seconds, maybe less. Well, people say that uh, we got a five-star review that said our ramblings are sometimes the best part. So, An hour into the prod- blah, 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 <laughs> broadcast, we start talking about sore butts. I'm just so saying. I forgot to ask you. This is a rambling. Is, I'm uh, sorry, but it's it's hurting. Is Mama Coach uh, she she better with our lack of language? I don't think we ever stopped. Did we stop? We didn't stop. We curtailed. I don't think we did. Do we need to go to the dollar store and get you one of them hemorrhoid pillows? <laughs> Maybe. I'm not ruling it out at this point. When did we curtail our language? I don't recall us ever doing she that. She said that we needed to curtail. She did. And you said. But I don't think we made any effort to do so. I mean, I've been saying fuck a lot. Have you? Yeah, I have too. But anyway, 
back to the story. Uh, Miss Fieri would state to the investigators, quote, he struck me hard. I fell into, well, not to be too poetic, but I fell into the position where what I wanted mm-hmm. in my secret places mm-hmm. was possible in the real places, mm. end quote. <laughs> I think Miss Fury's cunning, too. So Fury agrees with Sylvia that Gerald's mood had deteriorated as the end of August approached. But that is where her and Sylvia's stories would stop being the same. She would attribute Gerald's anxiety to the what she called tor- turmoil... Inside Tesser, according to Fieri, Gerald had become disillusioned with Tesser. Quote, we just had the feeling they were telling people what they wanted to hear, whatever they wanted to hear, because they were like, hey, let's be millionaires, says Fieri, who cut back on her involvement with Tesser during the company's token presale. But Gerald wasn't like that. I'm not like that. I don't know. Maybe we're just hippies at heart, end quote. Hippies? I don't see that. Gross. You want them there don't shave you pits? I do not. Well, I don't either, but I'm talking about them there women. Oh. <laughs> One of them little French girls. So Sylvia... French hippies? What the hell are we talking about? I don't know. We ramble, remember? That's right. Sylvia vehemently disputes... That's a good word, man. Ramble or vehemently? Vehemently. Yeah. <laughs> So Sylvia vehemently disputes Fieri's assertions. He was solely committed to using Tesser to provide free education for the betterment of society, Sylvia says, with no regard to his personal enrichment. What about the statement you told him about when y'all make y'all become multimillionaires, you're gonna become a Buddhist monk? I mean Having millions of dollars frees up a lot of time, so you can do some chanting or some meditating or whatever. So, wear them orange robes. I don't think that they do that. I don't know. Hell, I don't know. All right. So, <laughs> Fieri told the investigators that she had last seen Gerald on August thirtieth, shortly before the Tesser board meeting. He had been coding nonstop for days, insistently popping legal smart drugs, according to her, such as phenobut. And that phenobut was a Soviet-era tranquilizer, which is supposed to enhance concentration. But if you Google phenobut, it is labeled as a treatment for anxiety and insomnia. Mm. I've never heard of it. I have never heard of it. But speaking of phenobut, mine is so... Oh, my God. (laughs) It hurts, man. I had a car wreck. I'm in pain. In your butt? I think from where I bounced... Like, of all the ditches in the state of Georgia, that was not the one to hit. Had lots of rocks in it. Mm, 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 mm. Anyway. Now, Gerald would call Fieri to say he was suffering from severe anxiety. Fieri suggested he join her for an early dinner to relax before the board meeting. So the two meet at a mall and start to walk walk to a nearby restaurant. Do those things exist anymore? I guess they did. Malls? Well, there's one I know of, but it's not much in it. (laughs) As they're walking to said restaurant, Gerald races ahead and darts around a street corner. When Miss Fieri makes the same turn around the street corner, Gerald is gone. Hmm. Now, she would state to investigators that she was not concerned. 
because Gerald often isolated himself when he felt overwhelmed. He would pace the streets of Columbus with a baggy black hoodie pulled so tight around his head that his eyes were hardly visible. So he's just a weird guy. Yeah. After days had passed with no word, Miss Fieri assumed that Gerald had gone to visit his mother, which she knew lived somewhere in southern Ohio. But when Gerald's mom emailed her looking for her son in mid-September, Miss Fieri became alarmed, and she's the one that contacted the police and filed the missing persons report. So the next person we get to in our long list... And the next person that Peters and Hounshaw interview is a man named Charles Chick Ford. You will remember he is the auto mechanic that dabbles in the supplements. Of course. I mean, how could I ever forget stuff that I've never heard before? <laughs> remember, he is the uh, the man that introduced Fieri to Gerald. Now, a talkative and slightly pudgy man, Mr. Ford keeps his patchy gray hair pulled into a ponytail. So, Mr. Ford was also the last person known to have seen Gerald alive. Ford got to know Gerald through a mutual friend, a separate woman who Gerald was dating at the time. When the relationship went south in early 2018, Mr. Ford invited Gerald to stay at his condo. And Gerald would end up living at Ford's place until he moved in with Miss Fieri in the late winter of 2018. Now, the two men grew close enough to travel together to a nutritional conference in Indianapolis. Jesus. Yeah. You're that into it that you're going to go to a conference? In Indianapolis, of all places. Nice city, though. I've been there a few times. I saw Roger Waters play there. It was amazing. Gerald was a devout user of herbal supplements sold by Life Vantage, the company for which Ford was an independent distributor. Mr. Ford also invested a modest sum in Tesser on the chance that such a bet would allow him to join the expanding ranks of blockchain millionaires. Tesser, in turn, named Ford's wife, who lives in Florida, to its board of advisors. Now, how the hell does that work? You just appoint them, and then they become an advisor. Appreciate your candor. <laughs> I, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, you're looking at, what, 18 hours apart? She lives in Florida, and you live in Ohio? Yeah. That, wait, a, hold on. Yep, yeah. that math checks out. Yeah, thank you. I don't know. Depending on what part of Florida. Because if she's all the way down in Key West, then that's like... You're just going to have to add another six or eight. Yeah. I've never been down there. I thought I think it's... Uh, I'm sure it's beautiful. I'm sure it is. They make good pies down there. Yes, I've heard that. They have, uh, they have um, chickens running everywhere, too. Yeah, I have heard that before. Gerald, who did not have a car or a driver's license, called Mr. Ford on the evening of August 30th to ask for a ride to the Tesser board meeting. They agreed to meet at a park across from the shopping mall. When Mr. Ford arrived in his Saturn, he states that Gerald jumps from the bushes as if he had been hiding. Getting into the car, Gerald tells Mr. Ford that people were attempting to steal his money and they were willing to, quote, OD him to get it. Yeah. So they're going to drug him, to basically make it. Yeah, I got you saying. So he's him. scared that he's going to be purposely drugged. Yeah. So after Gerald's meltdown on the sidewalk after the board meeting, he went to Mr. Ford's condo instead of returning to the hotel room he and Fieri were staying at. So I'm guessing that's where he ran off to when he ran around the corner when they were going to dinner. He called Ford. Ford come and picked him up. They went back to Ford's They place. pecked him? Pecked him. Pecked him up. 
He never slept, spending the whole night on his laptop. One of the emails he sent that night was addressed to a company he did freelance work for. It contained a request to mail him paper checks uh, instead of depositing his payments into that joint account that he shared with Fieri. So the next morning, Gerald asked Mr. Ford to drive him south towards Cincinnati. He did not give Mr. Ford a reason for wanting to go. And Mr. Ford did not question why. So the two men start down I-71, and within a short while, Mr. Ford states that Gerald insisted that he needed to switch over to I-75. Again, providing no explanation, so Ford pulls off at an exit in the remote populated area of Clinton County and decided to get gas at a BP station before heading west to I-75. After pumping gas, Ford went into the station to buy water and snacks while Gerald stayed outside to smoke a cigarette. This is some crazy bullshit right here. Mm-hmm. Ford went into the station and, and tells the investigators that the credit card system was on the fritz and it delayed his checkout by 30 to 45 minutes. I've been thirsty and hungry before, but I'm not waiting 30 to 45 minutes so you can fix your credit card machine. I'm heading. I mean, maybe he was starving, dude. You don't know. You can't speak for him. Okay, now that we got that out of the way. (laughs) When he he finally exited the store, Gerald and Gerald's trusty black backpack were nowhere to be found. Ford said that he went looking for Gerald in the soybean field across from the gas station and then along the country roads that twist and turn around the state route leading to I-75. He also said he stopped at a Burger King during his search and bought a double cheeseburger for the clerk at the BP station because he had heard her mention that she was starving. What a great guy. That's sweet. That's super sweet, man. Don't be criticizing. Now. That's a super sweet thing to do. Investigators Peters and Hornshill felt that there was some things wrong with Mr. Ford's account. And according was to... Was it like overdrawn? Yeah, probably. <laughs> That's why it took 30 to 45 minutes for it to work. True. That's now, according point. to the police records, it showed that Peters and Hounshaw felt like that Ford was misleading them when they would ask a question instead of Answering the direct question, Mr. Ford would tend to speak in a 10-minute ramble filled with confusion. That's the only way I know how to communicate. (laughs) (laughs) If you've ever listened to our podcast, you know that's spot on. (laughs) More importantly, the two investigators could not fathom how it could have taken 45 minutes for the BP station to fix a credit card machine or why Mr. Ford had not bothered to call Gerald's cell phone even once after he discovers Gerald missing. Yeah, that don't make sense at all. The investigators' instincts told them that at the very least, Mr. Ford knew how Gerald had perished. Upon returning from the interview with Mr. Ford, the two investigators decided to check into Mr. Ford's fanciful tale. So they head out to the said BP station where he filled up with gas and bought his snacks. The manager at the BP station stated there was quote, no way the credit card system had malfunctioned for 45 minutes. 20 minutes was the absolute maximum downtime, end quote. 
So the investigators talked to the clerk that Ford stated he had bought the double cheeseburger for. She told the investigators a man had offered to bring her food but never returned. Hmm. So his story falling apart. Well, so he didn't get her a double cheeseburger? I think he ate it. I, I retract my statements about this man. According to police records on November 7th, the investigators called Gerald's mother, Miss Judith Wallace Huff, to see if she knew anything about her son's friend, Mr. Ford. She told them she had spoken to Mr. Ford in mid-September after Gerald had been missing for two weeks and that she had, to, had been struck by something he had told her. Quote, he said that Gerald would be discovered dead in a field, end quote. Jesus. So that same day, the investigators asked, her, asked Mr. Ford to come to the headquarters in Lebanon, Ohio. Do we know that she said, I mean, can we confirm that he actually said that, or is it just from her? It's just from her. Okay. But still, I mean, still, I mean, I have no reason not to believe her. Yeah, even if she's paraphrasing. Yeah. So the two investigators proceeded to grill Mr. Ford for hours about his inconsistencies in his statements, particularly the fact that he never once called Gerald's cell phone after he went missing. The investigators told Ford they were certain he did not call because he knew Gerald was already dead. But Mr. Ford unflinched and unequivocally stated that he had seen Gerald remove the batteries from his phones as a way to avoid being tracked by satellites, so there was no point in even trying to call him. Now, remember, he had three cell phones in his backpack. Gerald used one for voice calls, one for internet service, and one as a personal PDA. The investigators tried their best to get Mr. Ford to confess by reassuring him they would understand if something had happened by accident, say, I don't know, maybe a heroin overdose that led to Ford disposing of Gerald's body. According to police records, their own record, the investigators' own record is stating, quote, I think you're a good person, and I think you ended up in a really bad situation that there was no good answer to. You tried to solve the situation as best you could because you're a problem solver. You're an entrepreneur, end quote. That makes perfect sense. But Mr. Ford would not waver from his denials, even when informed that a cadaver dog had alerted to his Saturn. <laughs> Ford would take a polygraph exam, and despite the examiner stating that he showed one instance of deception, Ford was allowed to go back to Columbus. But the investigators would quickly get a search warrant for his phone data and subpoena his bank records. Even though the investigators had a person of interest, they still could only guess at how Gerald had died. Now, the Warren County Coroner's Office had been unable to establish a cause of death due to the body's lack of soft tissue. On November 8th, Gerald Skelton was transported to the Human Identification Center at the University of Indianapolis. A Miss Krista Latham, the forensic anthropologist who runs the center, meticulously cleaned the bones. She was able to identify a significant wound that appeared to have occurred around the time of Gerald's death. And this is the fracture at the top of the left femur, near where the leg connects to the pelvis. The femur, remember, is the largest bone in the body, and breaking it usually requires a tremendous amount of force, right. like getting hit by a car or falling from a great height. I couldn't imagine. No, I couldn't either, man. That's some serious pain right there, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So investigators were really liking Mr. Charles Ford as the culprit. However... He was exonerated by his phone and bank records. Verizon's location data confirmed that 
Mr. Ford had explored the roads near the BP station on the afternoon of August 31st, and his debit card statement listed a $11.21 purchase at the Burger King in Springboro, the last place Ford said he had looked for Gerald. There was not a shred of evidence that he had driven seven miles south to Clarksville to dump the body. So now back at square one, the detectives sent out a press release asking members of the public to report, quote, anything suspicious in the area of where Gerald had disappeared. A local TV station and the Dayton Daily News picked up the press release and tips slowly began to come in. The most credible potential witnesses were of residents of a cul-de-sac named Shepherd's Way. And this cul-de-sac runs along the western boundary of Bill O'Brien's property, roughly a half a mile from where Gerald Skelton was found on the other side of the soybean field. Among them was an elderly woman who said she had been startled one mid-September morning to see a disheveled man in her backyard. He was cautiously peeking out from behind a tree, but soon melted back into the woods. Two more sightings came from a man and his father-in-law who said they had seen someone fitting Gerald's description walking along the shoulder of State Route 22 in early September, possibly with a bedroll beneath a backpack. They had thought it was odd that anyone would be walking in the summer heat, let alone dressed in heavy black pants. The father-in-law added that a friend of his, an avid hunter, had placed a deer feeder in the area behind Shepherd's Way, and he had been surprised to discover that someone had been using his feeder as a stove. In light of what they had learned from the locals of Clarksville, the Warren County Sheriff's Office sent out a team of seven officers on November 21st to comb the thick woods that lie between the soybean field and the neighborhood Shepherd's Way. They made their first crucial discovery in a clearing covered with leaves. A thin tree along the clearing's edge had a cord running from, the high, from high up on the trunk to an anchor in the ground, and someone had draped tarp over the line to form a crude shelter. Close by was some burnt wood arranged in a pattern of a campfire, and this makeshift campsite was near a ravine with a small creek at the bottom. And this small creek was an offshoot of the Todd Fork Creek. Mm. Two de- of course it was. Of course, it's just an offshoot. Tributary. Two detectives hiked down into the ravine, wading through the nasty water which at this time was only a few inches deep. What makes the water nasty? How do you how do you know that? Well, they said mucky. Mucky? Yeah, they used the words mucky. I say nasty. <laughs> they soon discovered a mound of mud caked leaves and broken ba- branches. On top of this was a black zip-up backpack. When they picked up the pack, they could see it was soaked all the way through and covered with debris. Inside, they would find Gerald's computer as well as an assortment of other items, seven lighters, canister of pepper spray, electrical tape, blue work gloves, a Nissan hood ornament. What? Yeah. A copy of the New Testament, probably from the Gideons, three (laughs) unwrapped Magnum condoms. Unwrapped, you say? Unwrapped, I say. Mm. Mm. Ha-cha-cha. And an ear of unshucked corn that had char marks from roasting. <laughs> if I got high on PCP, I couldn't come up with that list. That is insane. And that's what they found in the backpack. There's just random corn. Random corn, a hood ornament, three unwrapped condoms. 
pepper spray. I mean, it sounds like somebody's getting into some building nails. Um, they had a wild weekend planned, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Work gloves, electrical tape, pepper spray. Somebody was about to have some good time in that ravine. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I hear people use. I, I mean, I may be mistaken. <laughs> It's not funny, but Jesus, this is some odd shit, y'all. Yeah. We got to find something to laugh We're at. We're definitely not laughing at the unfortunate uh, demise of Mr. Demise Jill. of him, but yeah, this doesn't make any sense to me. No. I mean, we've been clearly, we're almost 100 episodes in, and none of the stuff that we ever talked about made sense. But if they had come out and said that he had been abducted by aliens, I would buy that right now. Because this man. That still doesn't explain the corn. <laughs> you're. You're. <laughs> You're hanging on to the corn. I want to know where the Nissan hood ornament come from. I don't care. I just, I have to know where the corn came from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So it was, now this is the Warren County Sheriff's Office's theory. Let me put that out there first. I ain't saying that I agree with it, but this is what they say they come up with. So according to them, it was clear to their investigators that Gerald's mental health had frayed as he struggled to launch Tesser, something that he had pinned his hopes and dreams on. The closer he got to success, the more anxious he had grown at the prospect of being folded into the conventional world he had long rejected. Gerald had a history of dealing with this turmoil by just running off. He had gone to Florida to become a vagrant after dropping out of college and he had fled into the mountains of southeast Ohio while wrestling with the realization that he had lost many of his good years to drugs. Authorities theorized that as he smoked outside of the BP on August the 31st, it seems entirely in character that he decided to flee the stress-filled life he had in Columbus. He chose to abandon all of society to become a hermit, swapping the stress of Tesser for the solitude of the Ohio wilderness. After walking or hitchhiking the seven miles between the BP and Clinton County and Bill O'Brien's property, Gerald probably survived in the Clarksville woods for weeks, foraging food and camping supplies from farms along State Route 22. He seems to have never interacted with another soul as if uttering a single word to someone might spoil his scraggly little piece of heaven. The fractured femur, a potentially fatal injury if bleeding, was heavy and untreated. That could have led, I'm sorry, that could have occurred in a number of ways. One detective theorized that Gerald had scaled a tree near the ravine to reach a deer stand, but accidentally fell out. Or maybe he walked too close to the edge of the ravine and lost his footing. In either scenario, Gerald would have been separated from his backpack upon smashing into the Rockfield Creek. You know some things about Rockfield ditches. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) I wonder if his butt was sore. If conscious, Gerald might have watched in anguish as his prized backpack washed down the stream. Somehow, the severely injured man pulled himself out of the ravine and crawled for nearly half a mile through a soybean field before reaching another patch of woods. There, he succumbed to his injuries in a bramble of honeysuckle vines. Now, that's their theory. It's a good one. I mean, I'll be honest with you. It is. Based on what they have to go on, it is a good theory. That's not, I mean. Gerald's mother, Miss Judith Wallace Huff, is pissed at 
the Warren County Sheriff's Department. Really? Yeah, she is not happy. Hmm. And the reason... Tell me. ...she focuses her anger at them is because, according to her, the detectives did not decide to follow up on a clue she had given them from one of Gerald's pseudonymous Twitter accounts, at Composition4, F-O-R-E, she kept watch on the account through September of 2018, hoping to find activity that might indicate that Gerald was still alive. As of September 22nd, the three most recent posts were all dated August 27th, four days before Gerald disappeared. And the tweets are as follows. The first one, quote, this just in, at one point in time, having things meant things, end quote. Okay. The second one, quote, ran out of Phenobut, but really feel ambivalent about it, end quote. Okay. The third one. He's always posting that he's out of drugs. Yeah. That's weird. Most people don't, you know. Yeah. They, they, they don't put that out there. Yeah, they don't put that out for the world to know. Hey, I'm out of drugs, people. <laughs> the third one, quote, numerous time in my life when I thought I was being the most selfless and considerate. In retrospect, I found I was egocentric. Might have learnt a valuable lesson, end quote. Hmm. Well, at least he's learning. Now, Judith would check the account again on September 25th, and those three posts had been deleted. Hmm. What was left at the top of the page was Gerald's last post dated August 27th. And it said two words, quote, meanwhile, antichrists. What? Yeah. I would definitely need some more contact, my friend. Well, that's all you get. Oh, well, then <laughs> never mind. <laughs> now, Judith has repeatedly asked the Warren County Sheriff's Office to contact Twitter and obtain information about the IP address that, you, that was used to delete Gerald's tweets, data that might give her a better sense of how her son survived in the woods or whether he was leeching off someone's Wi-Fi to satisfy his addiction to the Internet. I mean that's that's pretty damn reasonable for to me I for her to request something like that and why the hell would they not do it? I don't know. Investigators would state that Twitter would need to perform quote extensive engineering efforts end quote to recover information that is quote not necessary and decline to follow up. That Twi- would piss Twitter me. Twitter decline to follow up? No, the sheriff's office. Oh. So that would piss me off as a mother. Well, Here's my opinion is if your son is missing and then found dead, any lack of effort is going like there's how much can you expect? What I'm trying to say is you as a mother would probably never be satisfied. There's not enough that they could do. Period. I agree. To satisfy you. you. I do agree with you. But at the same time, what would have hurt to have called Twitter and say, hey, no, I mean, I get it. I mean, I'm. I'm not saying they shouldn't have. They should have. But I would have at least not been so callous as to say, okay, we'll contact Twitter. And then whether you did or not, just tell the mother, hey, they're saying this is going to take a lot of time and effort, and they just, mm-hmm. they're not willing to do it. So you're saying lie to her, yes. to her face. Yes. Okay. Rather than be a decent human. Well, no, you're being a decent human by, by giving her closure. to her face. Yes. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with you. The alternative is you piss her off and she goes to the press. I don't disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> Judith has not given up on the notion that her son might have been murdered. The story that makes the most sense to her is that Gerald secluded himself in the forest to engage in a, quote, 30-day religious fast. That would explain the New Testament in his backpack. But what, 
I mean, was he religious? Uh, she was. She was heavily religious. I don't think he was. Okay. Being that smart, I don't. A lot of those very smart people do not. Hmm. They're agnostic. I wonder why. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just, I'm going. I'm just playing. Maybe he had an accident <laughs> while in a weakened state, or maybe he crossed paths with someone whose malevolence was too naive. Or I'm sorry, their malevolence. He was too naive to see. Yeah. His all right, and this is her saying, "Quote: His biggest flaw was that he had a loyalty for friends and a trusting nature. This trait caused him to be hurt and betrayed more than once." End quote. Judith wants to recover the tangible items found in the backpack, since they constitute nearly all of his possessions. But the Warren County Sheriff's Office refused to release the property to her, stating, "Quote." I realize we have closed this investigation, but we feel obligated to maintain custody of the items we have to assist with further investigations should that become necessary in the future, end quote. Judith has not been able to visit the woods where she knows her son lived and likely perished because Bill O'Brien will not let anyone come on the property. No one? No. And from what I read... He only allowed law enforcement to search within something like a half a mile from where the body was found. Really? But I don't understand that. I thought murder trumped everything, or dead body trumped everything, not murder. You would think. And I guess the other thing is, is there not laws where you can just be like, look, we need to subpoena this. I don't know if you'd subpoena is the right word, but something get a court order to go search the entire property. Well, I mean... Uh, I'm going to go back in time, but if you remember on our Brandon Lawson case, they can't. Yeah, you're right. They can't search that any of those properties because it's private, and they the 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 owners won't allow it. I don't understand that. There's though. never been a search. Why would you as a for Brandon on the on those property? I don't understand why you would do that. Because you're guilty of something, probably, or you're hiding some shit out there. I mean, that's yeah, illegal. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not necessarily saying you murdered someone. I'm just saying you're doing something that you don't want the police involved in. That's crazy, man. It could be anything. It could be, you know, illegal cable. <laughs> I, I can't let them know I'm getting my stories for free. My stories. <laughs> All right. So Gerald's mother would respond to the Wired article on a memorial page that is set up in Gerald's name. The only thing I'm going to say about that wire, Wired article is it is not easy to read. No, that guy likes his thesaurus. Yeah, he's a smarter man than I because I'm just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Judas, Judas. Yeah, Judas. Judas. Yeah. Judith Wallace Huff states, and this is a long statement, so bear with me. Oh, God. Some of the information in this article is inaccurate. Some of the information used in this article describing my son's character came from people who were supposedly friends with my son. People are inclined to be jealous of those who are gifted. Like my grandmother always said, them that accuse are most always them that are doing. Money is the one thing that you can count on to destroy lifelong friendships as well as marriages. My son was a contract worker who didn't get paid regularly and has bad credit and didn't pay bills or debts reliably. Sometimes he didn't get paid at all. Much of his work was done for his best friend from high school who did not pay him what he was worth. He went months working without payment, no health insurance, no dental insurance, no life insurance or benefits. Sheesh. He struggled financially much of his adult working life. His, quote, friends 
and loyalty to them to build their startup computer software business was his downfall. And then she states, Steve Job and Steve Wozniak scenario. My son didn't have a mean bone in his body, but he was a passive-aggressive personality. My son was never arrested by the police for breaking a window to a church to take refuge from cold winter weather. He was detained, given something to eat, drink, and was driven home. He was supposed to pay for the broken window glass. He died before it was paid for. This occurred on one of his woods escape in winter, and it sowed. My son's skeleton remains were not leaned up against a tree, but in a discombobulated position against a small honeysuckle bush with his skull in pieces a distance away. Oh, wow. In pieces? In pieces. Yeah, but you can't determine. Uh, I guess they didn't determine whether or not that happened post, pre or yeah. post. I think it was post because there was evidence oh, he according was, to the coroner. Yeah, he was scavenged, scavenged yeah. for sure. She goes on to state, the medications my son took were prescription drugs prescribed by his physician for anxiety. He was never arrested for buying or selling street drugs. He has never been charged with any felonies. He's prescribed Soviet-era, uh, whatever that was. DMT? No, <laughs> Phenobut is what the, yeah, that's what he Soviet was Soviet-era DMT? <laughs> that sure too. you don't want that. No, no. <laughs> There are inaccurate online stories to smear his name and reputation to minimize his life and suggest his death was of his own doing. But my son was doing very well financially at the time of his death. Even the police said they don't believe that this was the case because he was making a lot of money at the time he left. No one from Tesser has shown any empathy to the family. No one with it. No one with the exception of his girlfriend would even talk to me or respond to emails. No wonder he spent so much time online with online friends. Well, I mean, she's speaking emotionally. I mean, we don't know. No, I agree she's speaking emotionally. And I agree that she, as a mother, you're trying to rationalize how his yeah. smartness, his intellect expresses outward. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. But It's yeah. almost like she's, you're but verifying it, an autistic person almost. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it, but... But like I said before, again, she is bereaved. Oh, yeah. Who's to know exactly what they did? And But it's still not going to be enough for her. And I don't, I'm not faulting her for that at all. I'm just saying, hindsight being what it is, you could probably assume that there was more done than what she's saying. Yeah, I agree. And But I also think that there's things that the Warren County Sheriff's Office could do to, you know, quell some of her anxiety. Yeah. Um, the, I, I, all in all, I feel like the two investigators, Peters and Holmesville, did a very good job interviewing suspects, people, you know, close to him. You know, we're quick to throw bad police. Oh, I'll, the bus. Throw a, I'll throw a bad cop under the bus any day of the week. But all in all, I think they really did do a good job investigating it. And they, and that theory that they came up with does make sense if, the deer stand is there, and if that ravine is that deep, I guess that's what mm -hmm. I would definitely yeah. know. But there's nothing online about this other than this Wired article. Yeah, it's it's there's very limited information. There was a, there's a Reddit thread, but it doesn't it provide any, uh, any official information. It's Except just people, people talking, bitching about how smart people are, don't like society. Well, who the hell likes society? I don't either. You know that whole thing, that thing on on Instagram and TikTok where it's ugh. People. Yeah. I agree with I mean, are you seriously in love with society? No. Like, who? I mean, if I have to interact with the public 
it ruins my day. <laughs> I like jujitsu and I like like maybe four people. Other than that. Am I one of them four, Daddy? No. Okay. I tolerate you at best. Professionally? On a professional stance? <laughs> no. You're not professional. No, you're you're <laughs> damn right I'm not professional at all. So now we get into theories other than the police's and well, you just moms. Gonna, well, you're just going to have to find somebody else because I ain't got a dang clue what's going on with this guy. Well, I don't either. I like the... I like part of the theory with um, the police came up with, but I again, do, I do like that theory. I think it's pr- pretty accurate. He ran off, some sort of accident occurred, and he perished. But being as smart as he he was, if an accident did occur, that if he was at least not incapacitated completely, that he could have found a way to save himself. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, that's what I read somewhere that. Um, if he had shattered that femur bone and dislocated his hip, why is he crawling towards the soybean field instead of the crawling, opposite way crawling out of it to the cul-de-sac? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. Maybe he went out there and committed suicide or tried to, uh, messed his ne- le- uh, leg up really bad, and then eventually it came to fruition you know what he was trying to do in the first place but i don't know i mean it's just a very strange occurrence man it is it's extremely strange and i just don't i don't know as a parent i empathize with the mom absolutely and i don't i don't criticize anything that she said or anything that she's doing but just what i said about she's speaking from she's grief. speaking out of emotions yes I mean, she's got every right to do what, whatever she has to, but I think there's a little more to it than she's stating. That's all, yeah, that's I th- all I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. And I also think as a parent, you don't want to admit to the realization that your extremely bright child had a problem with drugs. drugs and then tr- had a problem trusting people. And, and then had a tr- and basically had a, a problem with finishing tasks. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm definitely... Uh, You're not a polygogots. <laughs> no, I definitely don't finish tasks. I mean, this is a very interesting case, and it's very like flies under the radar because there's just not a whole lot out there. There's not a lot of information no, about it. There's not. But I just stumbled across a. It was a post on Facebook, and I was like, "Holy crap! I haven't heard of this." And I said, "You want to do it?" And you said, "Yeah." That's how we got into this. Before, after we agreed to it, and you started your research, you realized there's just nothing out there. There's really not. So at the end of the day, I think maybe his penance for staying away from society you know, led to his downfall. But I just, I want, I would really love to see that ravine and see how deep mm-hmm. it is and see if that tree stands. I mean, surely if they stated that theory that they probably had visual evidence to support it or they wouldn't even... You're not going to go, oh, well, he climbed a tree stand fell out unless you find a tree stand. You know what I'm saying? True. I also find think it's shady that O'Brien won't let them look through the property. Yeah. At least let the mother come out there and, and give her some closure. Don't be a prick. But supposedly he's extremely wealthy, like he's worth millions and millions of dollars in the state of Ohio. 
No, he's probably rich in other states too. Well, that probably considering well, if he has millions of dollars, he's probably rich. If he was in no, Georgia. he's only in Ohio. Only Ohio recognizes his richness. Okay, all right, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we get into recommendations. He's probably yeah. Don't you don't you sass me, boy. Uh, I'm going to recommend a television show that I binge watched insanely. I watched every episode in a row. I don't usually binge watch, but I had to because I stumbled upon it because I love Patton Oswalt. And it's a show called Happy. It's originally on the Sci-Fi Channel, but it's on Netflix right now. And it is insane. But it's good. It is wild. If you like dark comedy, go for it. Because if we get more people to watch it, support it, they might do a third season. So please go watch Happy. It's got Christopher Maloney as the main character. His daughter's kidnapped and he teams up with her imaginary friend, played by Patton Oswalt, who is a unicorn, to find her. And that is probably the most normal thing about the show. So, <laughs> Really? The a unicorn, you say? It's insane. But yeah, it's not for kids. Even though there's a unicorn involved, do not let them kids watch this show. But check it out. And let me know what you think. What are you going to recommend, brother? I'm going to recommend a Instagram page if I can find the damn name of it. Oh, my God. Here we go. Is it one of those where the girls dance and show their boobies? No, that's OnlyFans. Oh. I had an OnlyFans, but there was no fans. <laughs> well, they don't want to see your hairy ass in a thong. Why not? I mean, I'm I losing my fucking shit over here because I can't find the damn thing. I mean, I think I got a pretty nice ass. Am I wrong? Yep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to recommend the Instagram page and they also have a YouTube channel and it is Oracle of the South. It is Miss Jessica J. Jones. She is from the great state of Georgia. It's a good state. I'm a fan. Yeah, me too. Um, What's this thing called again? I'm going to look it up right now. Oracle of the South. Oracle. Jessica J. Jones. She did, we carried on a huge conversation just by happenstance. She went to the Georgia Guidestones. And so we had a huge conversation about how me and you had talked about going down there and we would love to do an episode from the Guidestones and stuff like that. Nah, I don't know. I hot. would during the day. That's too hot. I'm not doing it at night. You can kiss my oh. ass. Hell no. We can do it in the fall when it cools off. But anyway, you're you're sidetracking my whole train thought of her. I'm sorry. But she actually does a lot of paranormal investigations in the state, and she happened to, on her way back to her home, stop in Carroll County and investigate a couple of Sasquatch sightings and a dogman sighting. A dog man in Georgia? That's what she does. No. And so she had my interest, and we talked for a little bit about that stuff. Mm. So if you're into that kind of stuff, check her out. It is uh, very, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Mr. Sore Ass, do you have anything else to say? My butt hurts, man. Hey, uh, here's a recommendation. Don't get in a car wreck and bruise your coccyx. It might be broke. For all I know, because no, it really hurts. Yeah. 
There's a lot of things I can well, say. Well, I've always there. heard, and, and it has proven true. You don't feel my it the entire, day of. My entire life is you never think something's broken. You know it's broken. So I think it might be broken, so therefore it's probably not. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, deuces. <laughs>